0: maintain it, to preserve it, to teach it, and to preach it without reservation and with great joy to this generation before us. That's what I'm praying for you. Would you pray that for me as well? And thank you for your concern. May we both bear witness to that blessed and powerful gospel until God takes us home to glory. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 Paul is giving thanks for the Thessalonian Christians who were bearing much persecution and affliction, but they endured with perseverance and faith. And Paul says that this persecution and their preservation in it is a demonstration of God's sovereign work, plan, and will. I'd like to begin reading at verse 5 and go through verse 10. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. This is the word of the Lord. May his name be eternally praised.
1: Thanks, Pastor. I think we should have just had him preach. (laughs) Thank you, John. So encouraging. Well, let's pray together before we dive in. Father, thank you for the faithfulness that our brother has just testified to. Down through the decades, you have been faithful to keep your promises. Not one of them has fallen to the ground. We thank you that the word of God is eternal in the heavens, that your word is a rock, a firm foundation on which we can build our hope. We pray that you would continue to keep him and the dear saints of First Baptist Church of Fenton faithful to the gospel down to the very end, that they would continue to hold fast the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints, and they would bear witness to it and rejoice in it and live from it all their days, and that you would glorify yourself in the name of your Son in and through them, even as we pray for ourselves in much the same way. Father, we also want to lift up two sisters to you this morning who are facing physical issues. We pray for Our sister Belinda, who's in the hospital now, just recovering from surgery, we thank you for the success of her appendectomy. We pray that you would continue to watch over her and Mark and the girls, that you would heal, that you would raise her up soon, and that they would be able to go home early this week, and that you would continue your goodness toward her and every good purpose be fulfilled on her behalf that you have for her. Father, we also pray for our sister Rachel as she heads into surgery On Tuesday, we pray that you would oversee that entire situation and that you would bless and heal in much the same way as you've always done. God, we look to you because we are needy. We don't trust in doctors or hospitals, as grateful as we are for them. We ultimately look to you. You alone can heal. You alone can bless what you have, the means that you've ordained. And so we ask that you would do that for the good of our two sisters. And as we come to your word again this morning, we ask that you would speak through me to us in a way that would equip us for every good work and prepare us to give a defense for the reason for the hope that is in us. And Father, even as I come to the subject of hell this morning, I'm reminded that this subject should not be treated lightly. And so we ask that there would be a sense of weight upon us as we consider these eternal realities. There are some within this very room who will be there, and it scares me to death. And so, God, would you please grant this morning faith to behold the Christ who delivers us from the wrath to come. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, we are dealing this summer with objections to the Christian faith, and we're coming to objection number eight out of ten this morning. And this objection is briefly stated, God can't be loving and send people to hell. Perhaps you've heard it. If you haven't yet, you will at some point, I'm sure. The objection sometimes gets stated like this. I don't get it. You Christians talk an awful lot about love, but you believe that God sends people to hell. How can that be? That makes God out to be some sort of moral monster. Why can't you just stick with Jesus who accepted everybody and said, Judge not, lest you be judged. Well, this morning what I want to do is answer that objection with six, I hope, brief responses. All right, these are going to be teasers. Each one of these six statements could be sermons in and of themselves. But I'm going to try to restrain myself to just give you the trailer, not the whole movie, because we'd be here a long time if that was the case. But I hope to give you six substantive biblical arguments against that idea. All right, I'm going to try to do so briefly so you can pray for me along those lines. Number one, here's the first first response to that. Hell complements love. Hell complements love. Often we hear it stated that hell and the idea of a God of love are diametrically opposed to one another, but that's simply not the case. Let me give you one verse on that or Three verses, actually. Psalm 145, verses 17 to 20. Here we have contrasted in God's word the idea of God being a God of love and a God of judgment. Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. See, the first reason for this objection that God can't be loving and send people to hell is because people don't know who God is. They don't know the nature and character of God, that God can, at one and the same time, be kind in all his ways and destroy the wicked. In fact, not just because he is kind, but as, a, as an, in fact, an expression of his kindness. In the Bible, we see Jesus, right, definitely as the most loving person who ever lived. No one would doubt that. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He lifted up the downtrodden. He received the outcast. He forgave the rebellious. He healed the blind. He cured the sick. He fed the multitudes. He taught the people. He exercised patience toward the religious leaders. He raised the dead. He had compassion on the crowds. No one reading the Gospels would ever doubt that Jesus is loving. However, alongside of all this, Jesus himself was the one who spoke about hell more than any other person in the Bible, in fact, more than all the rest of the Bible combined. It was Jesus who affirmed the dreadful truth that those who stand alone before God as sinners on the day of judgment will face condemnation in the state of eternal punishment called hell. In fact, he spoke of hell more than he spoke of heaven. He spoke of, for instance, a fiery furnace in Matthew 13. In Luke 13, he preached about weeping and gnashing of teeth. He spoke of outer darkness in Matthew 25:30. And he spoke of a place where their worm does not die, Mark 9. An eternal punishment in Matthew 25. An unquenchable fire in Mark 9. And literally being cut in pieces, Matthew 24. So Jesus, this loving man, this loving God-man, spoke of hell alongside of ministry to the sick and the poor and the weak. Because... When Jesus came, we, according to John 1, beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He didn't just want to minister grace, he wanted to minister truth to people. Because Jesus is the very image of the invisible God, as we read in Scripture, and therefore what we see in Jesus is true of the Father, So what we see in Jesus is what is true of the Father, namely that God is not only loving, but he is also good and absolutely holy and righteous. And a God who is good must not only love, he must also hate. He must hate that which is evil, that which is contrary to goodness. Think about it. God created the world to display his glory. We saw that two weeks ago. And isn't it right that a God who created the world to display his glory should hate all that fails to display his glory if that's the purpose for which he made the universe? Shouldn't he hate lies since he's a God of truth and he made the world to display his truthfulness? Shouldn't he hate sexual abuse when he created people to be image bearers of him and represent him in the way he interacts with people, which is not to violate them? Shouldn't he hate the terrorist that kills hundreds of innocent people because he's a God of life? Of course. And if he didn't, he could hardly be called a good God. So in Christianity, what we see is that God is both a God of love and a God of justice. For him to be truly loving, he must sometimes be filled with wrath, not just despite of, but because of his love. Becky Pippert puts it this way. She says, Think of how we feel when when someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might toward strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. So rather than being an obstacle to embracing the Christian faith, hell complements love. That's my first argument. Second, hell promotes peace. Believing in hell promotes peace peace among people. Now if you say that to a secular person today, they will look at you like you're an idiot. Cuz that's the fear. The fear is if we believe in a god who justly punishes the wicked, we're going to go around justly punishing the wicked. Like we're going to take the role into our hands and that's what's misunderstood so so widespread in our culture. As paradoxical as it might sound, Nonviolence among people can be motivated by a belief in divine vengeance. In fact, that's the way it's supposed to be in the church. Look at Romans 12 with me. Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 17. Paul writes Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. That sounds great. What a great ethic. Don't repay people who treat you evilly, respond in kindness. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What a great way to live. But how is that, where is that rooted? How do we live out that? How do we not take vengeance for ourselves and not create, how do we kill desires for vengeance within ourselves? Notice what Paul says. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You want a a, a bunch of people that care about the poorest, neediest people of the world? They better believe in hell. That's what Paul's argument is. What happens is, is that when people mistreat us or treat us wrong, how can we return good for evil? Because we trust that God will return good, or sorry, evil for evil. That God will, in fact, not he's not going to be treating them with evil, but he's going to be returning on them the justice that they deserve so we don't have to take it in our own hands. So hell promotes peace. Believing in a God of divine vengeance enables us to exercise great love toward those who wrong us because judgment is God's. Our call is to lay our lives down and to love others contrary to the way they might be treating us. But if we don't believe that, then vengeance is now. We got to take it into our own hands because we're being mistreated. But that's not the way the Bible thinks. That's not the way God thinks. In fact, We don't have to take it into our own hands because God will take it into his hands and his judgment is perfect and we can trust him and therefore we can love others who mistreat us. So hell promotes peace. Argument number three, hell underscores dignity. Hell underscores human dignity. While some may object to the idea that belief in a final judgment is a way of degrading Human people, human beings, it actually gives great dignity to our lives. Great dignity to our lives. Because when we're judged by God, it says that our choices really, really matter. And our lives matter. Eternally so. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Paul underscores. This idea. He says, So whether we are at home or away, that is, on this earth or in heaven, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. That is a way of dignifying humanity. It's saying that our choices and the things that we do, the deeds that are done in the body, matter for eternity. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we are going to receive from him what is due to us. Tim Keller was asked, by, by, a, by someone, and he pastors, he's a pastor in New York. And he was asked by someone who objected, objected to him at this point about the belief in hell providing a basis for human dignity. And here's the story he shares about it. He says, After speaking about the Christian faith to a gathering in a Manhattan townhouse, I was approached by two women who had, who had heard my presentation. They both told me that believing in eternal judgment made me a very narrow person. I asked them, quote, You think I'm wrong about these religious questions, and I think you're wrong. Why doesn't that make you as narrow as me? One woman retorted, that's different. You think we're eternally lost. We don't think you are. That makes you more narrow than us. I didn't agree, and here's what I proposed to them. Here's what he said. Both the Christian and the non-Christian believe that self-centeredness and cruelty have very harmful consequences. Because Christians believe souls don't die, they also believe that moral and spiritual errors affect the soul forever. Liberal secular persons also believe that there are terrible moral and spiritual errors like exploitation and oppression, but since they don't believe in an afterlife, they don't think the consequences of wrongdoing go on into eternity. Because Christians think wrongdoing has infinitely more long-term consequences than secular people do, does that mean they are somehow narrower? I don't think so. In fact, I think we value human life more we add more dignity to people. Rather than taking away dignity from people, we add great dignity to people because we say, you, your value is such, your image-bearing capacity as a creation of God is such that, there, that, you, that there's only two fitting places for you, heaven or hell. Because of how much... Being an image bearer sets you apart as the glorious crown of all creation. God has tethered his glory to your life. It is an amazing weighty responsibility and stewardship that we carry as image bearers. Dogs don't have that problem. They do exactly what they were created to do. Cats, animals, plants, birds, trees. They're doing exactly what God created them to do. But as human beings, we bear the likeness and image of God, unlike the rest of creation. And therefore, our lives matter for eternity. We're not just like a tree that gets cut down, and there it's gone. No, our lives and our choices today count into eternity. It's an amazing, amazing, weighty reality. So we've seen the first three. We're halfway done. We've moved fairly quickly through those. So that we've seen that hell actually complements love, hell promotes peace, and hell underscores dignity. Three more. Number four, hell reveals glory. Hell reveals glory. Now, you ready? We're going to take a deep dive into the, into the theological pool on this. All right, we're going deep. Because this is the ultimate purpose for why hell is. God has told us, and it's, it's weighty, it's heavy, it chafes against everything about our sinful pride and wanting to be at the center of the universe. See, there is a prerequisite for understanding the text that I'm going to read this morning. I'm going to read Romans chapter 9, part of it in a minute. And there's a prerequisite to understanding that text. And that the prerequisite is, is that you are okay with God being the center of everything. You got to be okay with that. You got to be okay with God creating everything for the display of his manifold perfections. And if you're okay with that, which means you're probably a Christian who's been regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, so if you're okay with that, then you'll, get, you'll, you'll read Romans 9 and it won't totally make you bristle, but it'll make you stand in amazement that God is the God he is. Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 19. You will say to me then, Paul's anticipating objections here too, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God is this great sovereign God you've been talking about, how can he find any fault with me? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter, for glory. We'll stop there. That is a huge, weighty theological argument. There are three purposes that are mentioned, and the first two serve the third. You'll notice verse 22, it says that God acts to show his wrath against sin. That's hell, all right? that's the ultimate place where God is demonstrating his wrath against human sin, that he is holy and that he hates sin. Second, verse 22, God acts to show his power in judgment. So he's demonstrating his wrath in judgment, his power and authority and righteousness and holiness to do so. Why, ultimately? According to verse 23, all this self-revelation of God in judgment and wrath, is to make known the riches of his glory, including his wrath and almighty power for the vessels of mercy. That's Christians. So, in other words, the final and deepest argument that Paul gives for why God acts in sovereign freedom is that this way of acting displays most fully the glory of God, including his wrath against sin, And his power in judgment, so that the vessels of mercy, us here this morning, who are believing in Jesus, can know him most completely and worship him with the greatest intensity for all eternity. Because when we see what we have been saved and rescued from, oh, how we will worship God. Oh, how we will praise him. When, how that diamond will sparkle against that black backdrop, the blacker that backdrop is, the greater the refraction of the glory of that diamond. And God's glory will be shown in justice and righteousness and holiness in a way that is not seen otherwise. It can't, God chose to reveal it and show it in a place called hell for all eternity. And yet, for those who have been saved, who have been rescued, not because they did anything to deserve it, but because God, by sheer mercy, chose to Make them an object of his affection and adopt them into his family and bring them in so that he can display to them the greatness of his mercy toward them. Here's the way. See, we won't won't hear this in a large part of today. You won't hear stuff like this largely because it just can't be tolerated. But it's in the Bible and it's there for our enjoyment, Christians, so that we might understand who this God is. I mean, I remember back in college, when I had a friend named Josh who set me down and said, he was just on the prowl, I guess, set me down, he's a good brother in Christ, and he said, have you read Romans 9 before? I said, "Uh, I don't know. Let's read it. And I remember sitting down and reading the entirety of Romans chapter 9 all about God's sovereignty, and I was literally undone in the hallway of Elizabeth Hall at Murray State University. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't I, 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 everything within me was fighting to believe this and fighting to understand what in the world is this God who has mercy on whom he will have mercy and has compassion on whom he will have compassion. What if I'm not one of them? And just being wrecked by this truth. And you know what was happening to me looking back 15, 20 years later? It is painful getting ripped out of the center of the universe. It's painful. It's painful to get ripped out of the center of the universe like that. I thought I was everything to God. I thought his world revolved around me. No, his world revolves around him. Not us. Him. Now, if you are a child of his, you are the apple of his eye. As hard as, as, hard as we can understand, he loves you with a passionate love that you cannot even begin to imagine. But you're not the point of it all. And neither am I. This is not our story that's being written here. This is God's story that's being written. And by mercy and grace, we're a part of it. Let's read what Jonathan Edwards had to say. And I went ahead and put it up on the screen because this is a dense quote. When you pull out Edwards' quotes, you're always going to get in trouble because he's one of the densest theologians ever. But here's what he says commenting on this passage. You can read it along with me about why this is proper and fitting and right for God to do. He says, It is a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. And for the same reason, it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete, that is manifest, manifold, everything about it. That is, that all parts of his glory should shine forth, that every beauty should be proportionally effulgent or radiant, that the beholder may have a proper notion of God. It is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifested and another glory not at all, like love over justice. Thus, it is necessary that God's awful majesty, His authority and dreadful greatness, justice and holiness should be manifested. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed so that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect, both because these parts of the divine glory would not shine forth as others do, and also the glory of his goodness, love, and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they'd, be scarcely, they'd scarcely shine forth at all. If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin... There could be no manifestation of God's holiness in the hatred of sin or in the showing any preference in his providence of of godliness before it. There should be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. How much happiness soever he bestowed, his goodness would not be so prized and admired and the sense of it not so great. So evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature and the completeness of that communication of God for which he made the world because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love. And if the knowledge of him be imperfect, the happiness of the creature must be proportionally imperfect. You get what he's saying? If God didn't display for us the full range of who he is, which necessitates his wrath and judgment, He would be depriving us of happiness because He'd be depriving us of something of Himself that we would not know. See, God created us to know Him, and to know Him, we must know Him in all of His manifold perfections, from love and mercy and grace, which we typically like, to wrath and judgment and hell, which we typically struggle with. But that is part of God communicating Himself to us for our happiness and eternal joy, because we will know him as he really is and be amazed at what we will one day see. Now, one of the reasons that I struggled so much with this as a, as a Christian when I first read it was because I misunderstood something that's fundamental here. And let me just, I'm just going to give it to you. There is a distinction between God's secret or what we might call his decretive will, what he has planned to do, and his preceptive or revealed will. That is what he commands of us. There is no command right here in this section of Romans 9. See, when I read Romans 9, I I read this as, what if I'm not one of these vessels of mercy? As though God were commanding me to be a vessel of mercy from this text. Now, I certainly think it's a good thought to have, it's a good good notion to entertain that am I going to be one of these vessels of mercy that God has prepared beforehand for glory? But at the same time, in non-contradictory ways, because God has a secret, providential, decretive will that he's working out and a revealed will which he has told us and called us to respond to, let me give you some verses on that. This is why a verse like Second Peter 3.9 is still true. The Lord is patient, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Or Ezekiel 18.23, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Or 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That is just as consistent as this. They're not contradictory to each other. One is, the verses I just read to you, is God's revealed will for people. God wants us to hear that he is patient, that he's not willing that any should repentance. this is the day of the gospel, it's time to get in the family of God. It's time to get in by faith and repentance toward Jesus Christ. That's, that's the call. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God doesn't take pleasure in this. He's not willing that you should perish. He doesn't want you in hell. He wants you in heaven. And yet, he has a purpose and plan that he is working out sovereignly in the world. So how does all that fit together? I don't know. It's a tension. It's attention. We're talking about God here, okay? But there is a decree that God has, but that decree that God has is not the rule of your responsibility. Your rule is not, hmm, I wonder if I'm a vessel of mercy or a vessel of wrath. I wonder what God has predestined me to be. No, your responsibility is to go to Jesus Christ. That is your responsibility because if this scares you, it's an evidence that God is working in your life and he wants to save you from his wrath. And that's what I finally had to get after struggling for months with this. It can take Christians years. Difficulty. I mean, talk to the people in this room who have struggled with the idea of God's sovereignty and how that relates to our responsibility. But What I came to understand and what a good brother told me later on is like, Mark, if you're so worried about this, you're an object of God's mercy. (laughs) If you're concerned about this, if it bothers you, don't take that as their sign of... Vessels of wrath aren't even thinking about God. They don't care. Vessels of mercy care deeply. Here's how John Piper puts it together, and then we're going to have to close this book for now and move on although I'm sure I've opened a lot of questions. Here's what John Piper says in holding these tensions together. He says, I affirm that God loves the world, and I agree with him on all of this. I affirm that God loves the world with a deep compassion that desires the salvation of all men. Yet I also affirm that God is chosen from before the foundation of the world whom he will save from sin. Since not all people are saved, you've got two options. All right? One is we must choose whether we believe that God's will to save all people is restrained by his commitment to human self-determination, otherwise known as Arminian theology. Or whether we believe that God's will to save all people is restrained by his commitment to the glorification of his sovereign grace, otherwise known as Calvinistic or Reformed theology. So this decision should not be made, note what Piper says, this decision should not be made on the basis of metaphysical assumptions about what we think human accountability requires. So saying, well, God can't judge people that he doesn't give free choice, ultimate self determination to. Look, we believe in free choice. You are free to make any choice you want to make. You are just not an ultimately self-determining agent. Says instead of make don't make the decision based on what you think metaphysically or the assumptions about what you think accountability requires, he says, it should be made on the basis of what the scriptures teach. What does the Bible say? Not what do I think should God should be like? What does the Bible say? I do not find in the Bible that human beings have the ultimate power of self determination. On the other hand, the sovereignty of God's grace and salvation is taught in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And that's where we have to land if we're going to be faithful to Scripture. We just saw it in Romans 9. It's not limited there. It's all over the place in the Bible. And if you're wanting to know where that quote came from, it comes from probably the most helpful article I've read on this. If you Google, are there two wills in God, question mark, by John Piper, it will help you. It's pretty dense reading, but it's one of the most helpful documents that you'll read on something like this. So are there two wills in God by John Piper? You can Google that and read more about it. So let's move on, because that was more than a trailer. All right, number five, number five. And these last two are gonna get us right to Jesus. Hell magnifies sin. So hell not only reveals glory, that was point four, hell magnifies sin. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. Jesus underscores the warfare that should characterize our fight with sin when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now, Jesus is speaking metaphorically, okay? He doesn't want you to go plucking your eye out. It's not going to help. The heart causes sin, not your eyeballs, okay? Okay? But he's saying, take the battle that seriously. Take the battle that seriously. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it away, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body should be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What's his whole point here? Sin is serious. Sin is serious. Sin is serious, and even as believers, the way we interact with it is serious. We manifest that we're a vessel of mercy. We manifest that we're a child of God by our fight with sin. We don't play with it. We take it seriously. We get violent against our own sin. Not against others, but against ourselves and the sin that is in us. A major objection to hell is that it doesn't seem fair. How can a God infinitely punish someone for what is done in a finite life. Let me give you an example of a sweet old woman who never took sin seriously, but she was so such a good churchgoer. it's, It's attributed to many pastors, but this is the story of Aunt Edna. I'd like to tell you about Aunt Edna for a moment, all right? Think about your Aunt Edna. She's a nice old lady. She never hurt anyone. She pays her taxes. She bakes cookies for the grandkids. She's kind to stray cats. I think she's a good person. Sure, she's just never gone in much for the church thing or the Bible thing or the God thing. She thinks Jesus taught a lot of nice things, but that's about it. But do you mean to tell me that because she's not a Christian, she must spend an eternity suffering in hell? I believe in God, but my God, the God that I believe in, is a God of love, a God of compassion, and he would never send someone like my Aunt Edna to hell. Well, let's think for a moment about Aunt Edna, because here's what has happened in her life. When she was young, every once in a while, maybe at Christmas or at Easter, she would hear the story of the God who loved her. God would whisper to her through the story of Scripture, you can learn more about me if you want to. I'd love for you to. I'd love for you to be my child. But she made a little decision. It may not have been overt. She may never have verbalized it. It may not have been a real conscious, but she made a little decision. I'm not going to do that. I'll use my mind to pursue other things, not God. And then there'd be times in her life when she would look at a radiant sunset or a majestic mountain range or the stars in the night sky and God would whisper to her through creation, I made this. I made you. You didn't get here by yourself. You know that and you can know me. You can say thank you. But Aunt Edna made a little decision. No, I will not acknowledge you. I will not give thanks. There were times when she did something wrong because Aunt Edna is no more perfect than you or me. And God would whisper to her through her conscience, perhaps through the presence of the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, you know you have offended me. You know you need to seek my mercy and forgiveness. You know you need it. You need to be rescued from your sin. I'll do that if you'll acknowledge and repent and receive what I have to give. But Aunt Edna made a little decision. No, I will not bend my knee. I will not repent of my sin. I am good enough. God must accept me. As she grew older, more of the people she knew began to struggle with health issues and they began to die. At every funeral, she was confronted with her own mortality. And she may have been even heard of the good news of Jesus' death for her sins and his resurrection and new life. And God whispered to her through her experience, you can't beat death, but I have planted eternity in your heart. This fear of death and the longing for something more, it's there in every human being. And if you ask me, if you say yes to me, you can be with me forever. But she made a little decision. I will not ask. I will not say yes. I'll be the captain of my own little ship. Then Aunt Edna comes to the end of her life. Maybe she never would have said it outwardly, but the truth is she has said no to God a thousand times. She has locked the door of her heart over and over again. She doesn't want to turn to him, to submit to him, to worship him or serve him. All she wants to do is be left alone by him, and being left alone by God is what the Bible calls hell. And we know, I mean, you can be an outwardly, morally kind person, but you have rejected God thousands and thousands of times in your life. So do you see what Aunt Edna has done? She refused to allow God to be God in her life. She put herself in the place where God belongs, and to be where God is, seated on the throne at the center of everything, with every creature bowing before him, that's the last place she wanted to be. You could say she has wished that God didn't exist, not the real God at least, the God who necessarily deserves and demands our supreme love and obedience and worship. For what is the first and greatest of all commandments, brothers, brothers and sisters? Our foremost moral responsibility as human beings to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. But Aunt Edna has decided all along that she wants nothing to do with that God. In a sense, as far as her life goes, she shut him out. She's killed him. We might even say that Aunt Edna has committed deicide, the murder of God. Now, that can't be done, obviously. But metaphorically speaking, in her life, she has shut God out again and again and again. And I ask you this question based upon that. If she's created in the image of God as someone who is purposed, who, whose purpose is to display the glory of God by her submission and surrender and walking with him and glorifying him, then she has failed to live out the very purpose of her existence, even though she was a culturally moral person. See, we never, and Aunt Edna didn't, we never leave God out because we value him little. We always exchange God because we value something more. And Nobody leaves God, let me say it again, or forsakes God, abandons God, suppresses God, or turns away from God simply because they value him little. We always turn away from God because we value something else more, which is why it is such a cosmic insult and infinite outrage to turn away from the God of the universe. It is the infinite outrage of the universe that human beings would prefer something else to God. We look at His glory, we look at His power, we look at His wisdom, we look at His kindness, and we don't say thank you, we don't say you are great. We say, I'm going to trade you for something else that I really want. That's why hell exists. Because it's an infinite sin to do such a thing. You can't do anything worse. There's nothing worse that can be done. The only suitable verdict... For a life of belittling God is an eternity of conscious torment. How infinitely valuable and worthy must be the glory of God if to spurn it for lesser things merits everlasting torment. Hell is meant to serve as an echo of the infinite value of the glory of God such that if you turn away from the glory of God and you turn to something else, and embrace self-rule in this world instead of living under God's rule, hell defines the heinousness of that sin. As C.S. Lewis said, sin in a human be- is a human being saying to God throughout their life, leave me alone. Hell is God's answer. You may have your wish. There are only two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. However, this can be misunderstood. It can be misleading to say that hell is giving people whatever they most want. Because the misery of hell, when people are actually experiencing it, and those who are experiencing it now, will be so great that no one will want to be there. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Between their sobs, they will not speak the words, Oh, how I want this. They will not be able to say amid the flames of the lake of fire, I want this. Revelation 14, 11, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. No one wants that. What sinners want is not hell. They want sin. Hell is the inevitable consequence of unforgiven sin, but that doesn't make the consequence desirable. The reason the Bible speaks of being thrown into hell is that no one wants to go there. No one is standing on the shores of the lake of fire saying, that looks like a good place to jump. They have chosen sin. They have wanted sin. They don't want the punishment. When they come to the shore of this fiery lake, they must be thrown in. So the question might be, then why does hell go on forever? Wouldn't a thousand years be enough? Listen, that's a misunderstanding of who's in hell. When the Bible speaks of when we pass out of this life and we proceed into the judgment seat of Christ, and we, there we are, either, we are confirmed in one of two states. We are either confirmed in righteousness or we're confirmed in unrighteousness. And to be confirmed in unrighteousness is what the people in hell are which means hell is not full of people with humble and repentant hearts who long to worship God in heaven. Revelation sixteen ten and 11 paints the picture. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. See, hell goes on forever in part because sinners never stop sinning. The rebellion against God's righteous rule never ceases. They continue to rebel against God because they are continuing in a state of unrighteousness. Final point. Hell necessitates Jesus. What if the question, the objection was not how could a loving God send people to hell, but how can a holy God accept people into heaven? What if that were the objection What if the objection was not, what if the objection was, how can God be so forgiving? That's the question the Bible raises. How can a holy God be so forgiving? Why aren't we offended by the idea of a forgiving God? Do you know that if God were simply to forgive sin, apart from the atonement of Jesus Christ, he would be unrighteous and unjust? That's a problem. That's a problem. God simply can't do it. And this is why Jesus came into the world, is to rescue us from the sin, from sin and from the penalty of our sin, which is hell. Jesus came to live in our place and die for our sin. This is why John 3.16 is in the Bible, plus the other two verses after it. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There's the heart of God. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is it, folks. He's our only hope. He's our only option. It's hell or Christ. Hell or Christ. And so I plead with you younger kids this, this morning, you can understand this, right? Hell or Christ. Hell or Christ. Christ. Hell or Christ! Hell or Christ! Hell or Christ! May it echo in your ears until you're converted. May that echo in your, in your bed at night. If I do not come to Jesus, if I don't submit my life to Him, if I don't ask Him to forgive my sin, I'm eternally doomed! Hell defines how wonderful and terrible are the sufferings of Christ. You, you know, somebody might say, Pastor, you can't say things like that to children. They're children. They are eternal image bearers of God. They are destined for one of two places. They need Jesus. I'm gonna preach my guts out till that happens. I mean, think, because what Jesus did on the cross, if we understand that, it should make us stand in amazement. It, should, it would be unspeakably magnificent that three hours on a cross would deliver one person from everlasting torment. And yet, on the cross, Jesus' sufferings were such... That not just one person was delivered from eternal torment, but that millions upon millions, multitudes, men that that no man can number, have been saved through his cross work. How precious is the work of Christ. That he would bear all of that for us. That the eternal torment that we deserve from our life of sin would be rescued and redeemed as a result of the work of Christ, should make us stand in awe and praise Him and worship Him and cling to Him. What happened at Calvary is beyond all imagination in its greatness, all imagination in its beauty, all imagination in its love. Hell is about echoing faintly the glory of the cross. That is the meaning of hell in this room right now, to help you feel in some emotional measure the magnificence of what Christ did for you when he bore not only your eternal suffering, but millions of people's eternal sufferings when his Father put our curse on him. What a Savior is echoed in the flames of hell. So that this, this can be displayed before us I'll close with this. People who want to make God more loving by getting rid of the doctrine of hell actually make him less loving. To the people who say, I believe in a God of love, so I don't believe in hell, I respond with this question, what did it cost your God to love you? What did it cost your God to love you? Do you know what it cost our God to love us Forever? The death of Jesus Christ, his only son, under the weight of eternal conscious torment and wrath for three hours on a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull for a multitude of people. If you say the God I believe in would never send anyone to hell, then you will never know what true love is. Because true love is when a father kneels down, as our father in heaven, kneels down and grabs his crucified and risen son and grabs you and pulls you into his arms because you're in union with that crucified and risen son by faith. Because we know a God who not only, like we saw last week, stepped into our suffering, but he stepped into our eternal suffering. And he bore hell for us. Praise his name. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty, weighty, weighty things. Heaven and earth, hell and heaven, they all hang in the balance for the things that we considered this morning. And oh God, how we pray that you would have mercy upon anyone in this room who is outside of Christ. May today be the day of salvation. May they see first, just freshly for the first time, even though they perhaps heard it hundreds of times. May they hear it now and hear it with faith, with belief. Saying, that's not just what the pastor said, that's what I believe. That's not just what the Bible says, that's what I believe. And may they personalize it and own Jesus as their own. Thank you that he's freely offered to us in the gospel. Thank you that we can take him without money and without price. We don't have to bring him anything except the sinful life that he died for. We can offer you, just as we are this morning, to offer ourselves to you. We pray that some would do that in this room, right now, in their seats, as we respond in song. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. In his name, amen.
0: Let's stand and sing. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious.